You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everyone, it's James Kreppi with the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition of Ducks Confidential. Obviously, with the cancellation of a lot of sports across the college sports landscape and the national sports landscape, going to be much more limited in some of our updates and big additions and things to talk about here on the podcast. So we're going to constantly uh, look for bigger topics, look for some debatable issues, some fun stuff in the weeks ahead. But given that there are not outcomes, given that we are not amid March Madness and the what would have been the opening round of the NCAA tournament, unfortunately, we don't have outcomes and games to be discussing. We don't have the opportunity to break down whether or not the Oregon men would have beaten a team like New Mexico State and Spokane and who they would have played in the second round, whether or not they'd be on their way to a Sweet 16 and most likely a destination in Los Angeles uh, for that regional semifinal and potentially regional final if they were to advance. We don't have the chance to break down for the Oregon women what would have been undoubtedly two wins at home before advancing to Portland, which would have been this week, to play in the Sweet 16 and presumably the Elite Eight to punch their ticket to a women's Final Four for the second straight year in New Orleans and the opportunity to potentially compete for a national championship. And certainly also the indefinite postponement of spring practice and the formal cancellation of the spring football game that coming on Friday. And that's where we start. Obviously a disappointing decision. I know for fans out there and for players and for the program as well, spring games are a very big deal for a lot of programs. I realize in the PAC 12, it's not as big a deal for a lot of schools. A lot of schools treat it as truly nothing more than a practice, barely a glorified scrimmage. There's a reason why, after all, the Pac-12 network was only sending its television crews in person to one of the spring games this spring, and that was going to be Oregon. Everything else was going to be done remotely. And that's partially a Pac-12 network problem and Pac-12 conference problem. But culturally, understanding the sheer importance and magnitude of what a spring game presents, Oregon clearly does, and Ducks fans clearly do. So the formal cancellation of the spring game, while not a surprise given the current state of affairs, both locally and nationally due to the coronavirus, is still a disappointment for people. I realize that basically anything for folks to look forward to in sports, but especially in football, whether it's college football or the NFL, is obviously something that is on people's minds. Amid a time that's very uncertain, 
anything that is an opportunity to look forward with optimism and something to look forward to is where people's minds are gravitating to in the sports world. It's the reason why the NFL has generated so much interest in and around free agency over this past week. On one hand, that's when the league year started and transactions had to be made. And with the void that was out there in the sports world, it was where a lot of analysis and breakdowns and debates and discussions were had. But at the same time, with so much uncertainty out there, there is and has to be the question as to whether or not any of it truly matters that much because first on the most basic level of sports, no one knows if there's going to be a season in the 2020 football seasons. Now, that's not to be alarmist, and that's not to get people more uh, upset about the way things are right now, but it's just with everything being canceled or postponed indefinitely, and now the current discussion uh, internationally and nationally about the Olympics, and that obviously coming over the summer, football season is not that much further down the road than that. And if decisions are being made as to the Olympics at this point, which is understandable, well then, decisions are going to have to be made about the football calendar as well. And the next thing that comes up is obviously the NFL draft, and there's been some discussion about that being pared down greatly compared to what it would have been otherwise. But we'll see on that front and discuss that more in the weeks ahead, certainly, as it leads up to the draft. But even that discussion and that debate and those talking points have been mitigated largely because players are not going to be making in-person visits to any NFL teams. We're not going to be getting reports over the next four weeks that Justin Herbert visited Team A or Team B and what that might mean and is that team looking at a quarterback or if Oregon's various offensive linemen, whether Jake Hansen or Shane Lemieux or Calvin Throckmorton also would have been making visits or if somebody would have visited Eugene. Those kind of reports, they're all going to be non-existent now for the next month. This is going to be one of the more strange lead-ups to an NFL draft because those are, while I admit they're somewhat small uh, stories, nevertheless, when you're talking about potentially, in Herbert's case, a first-round quarterback selection, it's a big deal. And it's a big deal for the NFL franchise, certainly. So anytime things like that do come up, they're part of the draft process and stories. Well, those stories aren't going to be had this year. So when those sorts of things are going to be discussed, or ordinarily would be discussed, and they're not going to be, well, certainly, that throws a wrench in things. And now when we talk about spring football and spring football games across the country, at this point, I'm not sure of anybody who either, at least those who didn't outright hold their game, I realize there's one or two group of five schools that managed to get in either close to all of their spring practices and spring game or, uh, or did indeed get in their spring game one way or another. Outside of a quite literally a handful of schools, most didn't. Okay. Well, for those who are outright canceling, as many have, and in Oregon's case, and Oregon State's case, canceling their spring games, it's still a disappointment. Not surprising at this point, but it's still a disappointment. For fans, I realize for a lot of folks who aren't season ticket holders, the spring game is the biggest opportunity during the course of the year to go to an event at Autzen Stadium, to go and see the team play in any capacity. I realize it's a glorified practice, but under Mario Cristobal, Oregon's spring game actually holds some weight, holds some value. They at least legitimately play uh, a practice. 
there are some where it's basically two-hand touch football and it's incredibly vanilla. Not to say that they get exotic by the play calls necessarily, but they're trying out there. Last year's spring game, they played a legitimate practice for the entirety of it. That said, it is still a practice. So is it disappointing that that's lost? Yes. Uh, and it's certainly for fans, especially a lot of young fans and fans with uh, youngsters at home where, again, maybe you're not able to make certainly not all the games during the course of a season. Maybe you're only able to make one or none at all. And you're usually watching from home the opportunity to go to the spring game on a cheap ticket and be able to take in uh, the sights and sounds and all the rest, well, that's lost, and that's disappointing. I understand that for a lot of folks. But if that's the biggest loss in the Oregon sports calendar, as far as football is concerned prior to the season, I think a lot of folks would take it at this point, given where we are in the current state of affairs nationally and internationally. If the spring game is the only thing lost, well, let that be the biggest problem sort of thing. Now, as far as the rest of spring practice is concerned, decisions still have to be made there. Oregon is continuing to postpone and suspend spring practices and all team activities for all sports. But given that at this point the spring sports calendar is totally shut down, we're going to maintain about football right now. They have suspended and delayed any kind of practices indefinitely. Players are home right now. It would have been spring break at this point anyway for Oregon. But next week is when they would have been returning and when practice would have resumed. The initial announcement was that things were suspended through March 29th. It is now through late April at best at this point. You have seen numerous schools around the Pac-12 and around the country outright cancel all of spring. Some have done so. Others haven't. Some have said ambiguous dates like early June. The point is, is there still have to be decisions on the conference level or perhaps at the NCAA level as to how all football programs are going to have to handle spring practice because everybody's at a different point in the calendar. Oregon got in four practices, was supposed to have a fifth, but got in four practices before break. Some schools were right around that same number. Some schools got in nine and ten, and as I say, there are a couple that actually got in all of spring practice, believe it or not. And then you have programs that don't have any spring practices, never even started by the time this all came around. A place like Virginia Tech did not even begin spring practice yet. So the reason why you haven't gotten the formal decision by Oregon or plenty of other schools that there has been the outright cancellation of all of spring practice is because the athletic departments don't want to announce that, tell their players that it is canceled, and not to return to campus for the remainder of either spring semester or, in the case of Oregon, spring quarter, where the whole term is going to be taught electronically and online only anyway. You don't want to have to tell players to stay home and that practice is canceled and not to worry about it. And then if things return to normal sometime in, we all hope, the sooner the better, but realistically, sometime in May or June or July or something, and then say, oh, wait a minute, we know we told you that it was canceled, but actually, can you come back now? They're trying to determine how best to go forward, how how best to go about planning things going forward. So realizing that things have just indefinitely been delayed, and it certainly is not looking good on the short term by way of the next 30 days, 
formal decisions will come sometime before that. And whether there has to be the expansion of fall camp to allow for everybody to get on some kind of level playing field, or ultimately just that folks have to adjust to the reality that there isn't necessarily going to be a level playing field this year insofar as the volume of spring practices is concerned. That disappointing as that may be for fans, disappointing as that may be for players, and especially disappointing as that may be for coaches who never want to hear that they're any different and that their program is any different than anyone else. Well, in this case, them's the breaks. There is simply no way to fit in the calendar for everyone nationally, given what is going on in the world today. So if teams and schools and programs have to adjust to the fact that they either did not get the full 15 or they only got some portion of the full 15 or they didn't get any of the full 15 allotted spring practices ordinarily, as I say, they're all going to have to adjust to it one way or another. But right now, the focus has to be on everyone's health and safety in the first place. And then for the season, as far as the season's concerned, just the fact that there may be a season is where the attention has to be, not necessarily on the volume of spring practices. To the hardwood, Oregon earned lots of recognition uh, individually and collectively as the various teams uh, over the course of the past week. Sabrina Ionescu, Peyton Pritchard, and Kelly Graves all earned Naismith finalist recognition. Ionescu for the Women's National Player of the Year, Pritchard for the Men's National Player of the Year, and Graves for the Women's Coach of the Year. It would be the first time any of them will have won if they do so, and those announcements will be had in about a week and a half for each of those awards, respectively. Ionescu also earned AP All-American honors. Hardly a uh, big surprise there, but nevertheless, she earns unanimous AP All-American honors along with Ruthie Hebert. They were both first-team selections, and Satu Sabali earns second-team recognition. Pritchard also earned AP first-team All-American honors, became the first Oregon men's player to ever earn first-team All-American honors from the Associated Press. Full disclosure, I am an AP men's basketball voter during the course of the season for the past two years and voted Pritchard for the AP first team as well. The AP will announce its National Players of the Year and National Coaches of the Year this week for both the women's side on Monday and men's side on Tuesday. The Basketball Writers and Basketball Coaches Associations will also announce their All-America teams on the men's side, so Peyton Pritchard will be going for consensus and potentially unanimous selection of first-team All-American honors this week. He would be the first Oregon men's player to ever earn either consensus or potentially unanimous first-team All-American honors if he is to do so this week ahead. The NCAA made some adjustments and allowed for some waivers for its membership rules due to the cancellation of spring sports. Uh, and then is going to be deciding on additional eligibility for spring sport athletes on March the 30th. Most of this is, again, formalities and procedures due to the decisions to cancel spring sports and spring sport championships a week ago. I know it's hard to believe it's only just over a week ago that those decisions were made. It feels much longer than that. Uh, but nevertheless, the NCAA making some of those decisions this past Friday. As for the waiver adjustments and things they were discussing there uh, as to membership rules, again, some of these things are more formal. Uh, it generates a headline because it's a decision to be made 
but there are things that just had to happen. And the reason why is because, for instance, there is the mandate that in order to be a Division One program, you have to sponsor uh, 14 sports. Well, if the sports are canceled in mass and the majority of the sports occur in the spring, uh, it's hard for some schools to say that they will have sponsored that many sports that season. They would have been under the threshold. Well, obviously, that wasn't the institution's decision. That was an NCAA decision. So the NCAA is saying, all right, well, understanding that that's the case, they're quickly granting the waivers of that requirement this year because otherwise you would have a lot of schools in jeopardy of not meeting the membership requirements to be in whatever division they might be. But these were Division One decisions. So that's what that part of the process had to do with. There was also the reimbursement uh, waivers for all athletes, recruits who would have been taking part in official and unofficial visits. Again, kind of a formality part of the process. But nevertheless, if people had trips lined up and had to cancel and for any reason was stuck foot in the bill, the NCAA granted waivers for the institutions to cover those for any recruits who would have been uh, taking official or unofficial visits that had to be canceled as a result of the recruiting dead period that at this point is still through April the 15th, though certainly it looks like it could extend well beyond that, uh, given that many states and municipalities have stay-at-home orders that extend well beyond that, including uh, what might be Oregon here in the next 24 hours or so. Hard to foresee anybody taking any kind of recruiting visits to any school in the country any time in the month of April or for most coaches to be taking any recruiting visits as their institutions probably wouldn't permit it at any time in the month of April. So we'll see if the NCAA extends that. But as to the decision going forward and and looking ahead to next Monday's decision as to the additional eligibility for spring sports athletes, there was the question first as to how they will handle winter sports athletes. While the NCAA has not formally made an announcement in that regard, their announcement this past Friday as to the decision that will be coming for spring sports athletes did not acknowledge the winter sports athletes uh, as part of that equation. So it certainly sounds as though, and there have been reports this past week, that it is highly unlikely, if just not outright, not going to happen for winter sports athletes. And again, while it's certainly disappointing in the basketball realm for teams and for players who were unable to compete in either the finality of their conference tournaments or the NCAA tournament, how systematically the NCAA would have been able to permit that and extend eligibility for some but not all would have been a nightmare. There was simply no way, and using the Pac-12 as an example, how the NCAA could have permitted, for argument's sake, additional years of eligibility for some of the Oregon women's players or some of the Oregon men's players if they so wanted it. But then what do you say to teams like, for example, Washington State or Cal on either the men's or women's front? For the On the women's side in particular, their seasons were over. Washington State, Cal, and plenty of others, and Washington and Utah and lots of other teams, their season was over. Not only were they not going to the NCAA tournament, they weren't going to the WNIT. They weren't going anywhere. Their season was completed. Well, if you suddenly grant additional eligibility to Sabrina or Ruthie or Satu or Mignon or any other player around the country 
who would have potentially been able to take advantage of that because they didn't get a chance to play in the full postseason. What do you tell all the players whose seasons were complete and whose teams were not competitive and weren't even eligible for postseason play? That they, hey, their seasons are over, so what are you going to do? That's that's the way it goes. But, hey, your team wasn't any good. You weren't competitive. Uh, but now we're going to make it even harder on you because we just allowed for the really good players on really good teams who weren't able to complete the totality of their seasons. They're going to be able to come back and do it all over again. Hard to necessarily come up with a way, again, systematically to handle 330-plus teams across the country with one blanket decision, one blanket set of rules for the winter sports. It just wasn't practical. It wasn't easy. So it stinks for all players involved. It stinks for the teams involved who could have been competing for championships, including the Oregon women, including the Oregon men, who, again, could they have certainly made a run in the NCAA tournament? Without question. Could they have been a team who could have been upset in the first round? Can't say it's impossible. They're a team that relied a lot on the three and was a very good three-point shooting team all season. But you have one bad shooting night, and that could have been it. As Joe Lenardi has uh, had kind of a simulation of sorts uh, of his bracket, and that's ESPN's Joe Lenardi, that is. He predicted such a thing. Of course, it's just kind of conjecture, but point is, is the Oregon men could have made a run. Could they have competed potentially for a Sweet 16 or Elite 8 or who knows, maybe even a Final Four? I, absolutely. Could they have also been a team that could have been ripe to get picked off and upset in either the first or second round potentially? Yeah, I think they showed that at different points. They certainly closed the season really strong, albeit against some weaker competition. Stanford was pretty good, but some weaker competition was mixed in there. But they also, they were a team that showed all year they were capable of playing at an unbelievably high level and competing with basically anybody that they played with. And they also showed at other points that they could be a little bit inconsistent and had some growing pains and whatnot. But the roster was coming around. The personnel was coming around. They were getting healthier late, and they were playing really good defense. So is it disappointing for a team like that that was starting to hit on all cylinders to not even be able to play in their own conference tournament, let alone the NCAA tournament? Absolutely. No way around that. And like I say, on the women's side, the Oregon women were regular season and Pac-12 tournament champions. They were going to be the number one seed in the Portland Regional. They were probably going to be the true number two seed overall. And the debate would be had as to... Leading into the women's final four, who were the better team was between them and South Carolina? Because let's face it, there was nobody who was going to challenge either Oregon or South Carolina before they arrived in New Orleans. There just wasn't. Those were by far and away the two best teams in the country all season long. Baylor was in that mix as the third team. Their schedule did not allow for them to necessarily showcase how good exactly they were on a week-to-week basis. And because they lost to Iowa State late in the regular season, that bumped them down from the two to the three spot by the time the season was over. But point is, those were the three best teams, but there was even a demarcation between two and three, quite frankly. And the debate would have been had all month leading into the women's Final Four, whether Oregon or South Carolina was better. And if they met, it would have been for a national championship. And it could have been one of the great women's college basketball games, potentially, of the last several years. Because it would have been two really talented teams, two very well-coached teams, and some of the best talent in the country on the floor at the same time. And while that certainly is generally what happens in national championship games regardless, 
Yeah, but there really was a, a true debate this year in women's college basketball as to who the best team really was. South Carolina was only a one-loss team, played great, swept through the SEC, won an SEC regular season and tournament title, and played tough competition along the way. Oregon was all of a two-loss team and obviously handled things and took care of business in the Pac-12 after they lost to Arizona State and played a tougher schedule than most everybody in the country. But when you factor in all the totality of the metrics, on paper, did you have to give South Carolina the nod by way of rankings at that point heading in? Yeah, you, you, you kind of did, objectively. You really did. Now, were a lot of statistics and a lot of metrics also favoring Oregon in that debate? Yeah. And that's that's what the fun that we're all missing out on. The fun that everyone's missing out on from the women's side heading into this month and for the rest of this month and what would have been the women's Final Four would have been the day-to-day and week-to-week debate leading into the Final Four and potentially a national championship matchup. And then, obviously, the fun of actually getting to see the teams play, that goes without saying. But to the individual honors, they collect them. To the team honors, they've collected them. And now for the additional eligibility question, unfortunately, the winter sports athletes, it appears that's not going to be up for debate or up for discussion. There's just no way to handle it systematically and justly for, as I say, over 300 30 plus teams on both the men's and women's side at the division one level, you can't start reinventing the wheel to allow for additional eligibility for the players who missed out. But then how do you handle it for the teams who were completely eliminated, whose seasons were absolutely over? They weren't postseason eligible and they weren't any good. So what do you do? How do you try to apply a rule to that many teams, to that many players and create what loopholes and exceptions there was just no way of doing that now for the spring sports yeah that's much more uniform and much more of a blanket way of applying it even with the additional eligibility though as we've talked about before that can certainly handle and allow for the additional year for all athletes in the spring whose seasons were cut short due to the measures taken to curb the spread of the coronavirus. And that's as best as you can do for those athletes. But because the overwhelming majority of spring sports are equivalency sports, which for those who aren't as plugged in in some of the nomenclature of college athletics, an equivalency sport is a sport where when you're not on full scholarship. So for football, men's and women's basketball, gymnastics, women's volleyball, and women's tennis, you're on what's known as head count. In other words, simply, you're on a full ride. You're on a 100% scholarship. So those athletes in those sports, when they're offered a scholarship, it's at 100% rate, with extremely rare exceptions, but you're on 100% scholarship. Equivalency sports are on some fraction of a scholarship. And in some sports, there's rules where the minimum has to be 25% or some other number. But the bottom line is it ranges anywhere from, obviously, 1 to 99, just not 100. And in theory, it could be 100. Yes, you are allowed that level of discretion. But by the by, in equivalency sports, the number of players who are on a 100% full scholarship is exceedingly rare. And the reason why is because... If the coach of that team, of that program, were to grant any one player a full scholarship, it would be that much less scholarship allotment for the rest of their roster. 
And for a sport like softball, for example, where you have 20 to 25 players on a team, depending on how a coach wants to handle their roster, and you're only allotted 12 scholarships, if you were to grant a player a full scholarship, on one hand, hey, that might be great for that player. On the other hand, now you only have 11 scholarships to dole out to your other 20 to 25 other players. That's why it's true almost salary cap kind of management in equivalency sports. And that's the day-to-day. That's how that operates every single day and has been for a long, long time under the most normal of circumstances. Well, granting the additional year of eligibility to the spring sports athletes, again, is the right and just thing to do. And we'll find out next Monday if that ends up being what the NCAA decides to do. They've indicated that they support it. You have conference commissioners say they support it. You have athletic directors say they support it. And certainly the players want it. But again, it is not a cure-all. And the reason why I say that is because those athletes are not on 100% scholarships. So the thing is, is why, and it's not just a senior issue. It's not. Because you have to grant it to everybody. And ultimately, you've got recruits coming in. And you have to expand the number of uh, scholarships for each one of those sports. And there's all sorts of decisions that have to come with granting the additional eligibility. But... It's not merely a matter of making those athletes whole and granting them their full ability to play four seasons worth of athletics at the collegiate level. When they're not on full scholarship, yes, there's the cost to the institution of granting the additional years, but there's the cost to the athlete and their family as well. They have to foot some portion of the bill here because they're not on full scholarship. They might only be on 25 or 30 or 50 or 75 or even 95%. Bottom line is they're not on 100% overwhelmingly. So even with the additional year of eligibility, their family still has to foot the bill for some portion of it. So it's not even a matter of being granted the eligibility in the first place should that occur, and that's the widely held belief that that is what's going to occur. It's that... That athlete's family still has to be able and willing to foot the bill in order to maximize and capitalize on that opportunity anyway. And you got to remember, for a lot of spring sports athletes, in whatever the sport may be, whether we're talking about baseball or softball, we're talking about track, swimming, men's tennis, whatever the case may be, at whatever the school might be, by the by, outside of top-level baseball players, there are not major professional opportunities at the sport level to be had after college. So even with the additional eligibility, even if your family might have the means, quite frankly, there is still going to be a lot of tough decisions to be made out there nationally by players all over the country, including at Oregon, but elsewhere as well, because you have to ultimately make the decision as to when you want to start your professional life and career in whatever your career field might be. And for the overwhelming portion of these spring sports athletes, it's not going to be on a competitive playing field anymore. Their competitive athletics careers will be completed at the college level. So, like I say, even with the additional eligibility, even if their families have the means, you still ultimately have to make the decision as to when you want to start your career and if you're completed your your academic requirements and degree path and maybe even potentially depending on where you are if like let's say if you're a fifth year senior already or were to be 
but now could have a sixth year, you might even be well into graduate school potentially. Sooner or later, you just kind of run out of avenues to pursue. It's just being frank about it. In some cases, no, is it everybody? No, of course not. There are plenty of people who don't graduate undergraduate in, in four years or five years for that matter, and that's that's fine. I'm, it's not a, a, a qualitative decision here. Point is, is that there are still going to be a lot of athletes out there who have to make these decisions. So first will be the NCAA. They make their decision next Monday. But even after that and even after all the issues that the NCAA is going to have to tackle on that front, the athletes themselves and their families are going to have to make their own individual decisions outside of what the NCAA or their own respective institutions decide. So those will be the things to follow over the week ahead. We'll certainly keep you attuned to all those things as they come up. And we'll come up with some other interesting talking points and debates certainly to be had in the weeks ahead as far as Oregon athletics is concerned. This is James Creppy with the Oregonian and Oregon Live, and that was the latest edition of Ducks Confidential.